Good morning, everybody. I am a bundle of emotion this morning, so forgive me. I, um, I walked in this place this morning, and I remembered uh, the last Christmas Eve that I was in Hayward, or I'm sorry, in Byron Center. I live in Hayward now. And I remember we put everything away, and uh, I told Julie, I said, I'll be home in a bit. It's Christmas Eve, right? But I'll be home in a bit. And uh, I drove up here to that upper parking lot up by Pepino's, and I was sitting in that parking lot, and it was snowing sideways. And I prayed that day in my car I don't know why I went there. I really don't remember this fully, like why I went there fully, but I remember sitting there in my car and praying. And I prayed one, guy, one day, God, if you'll allow the church to be in this strip mall right here. I think I was praying, God, give us the grocery store. Like, that's probably what I was doing. But, but I remember praying, God, if, if you would give us this a spot here, it seems like a pretty good spot for a church. And I went home and opened gifts and went on with my life. And then um, when I started seeing pictures, what'd you call it, the Gideon campaign? My goodness sakes, I was ready to come back. I was like, John, I'll come back and lead music. Like, I'll do anything. You don't want that. But I was so happy. And to walk in here this morning, my goodness, I'm just uh, I'm a mess of emotion. I'm so proud of John and Lindsay Corvette. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, <clears throat> I'm so proud of you guys. And... Uh, I've known John for a long time, and I've known Lindsay since she was in college, and uh, my goodness, I'm just really, really humbled to be here today. Julie's with me. I don't know where Julie is in this service. She's back here in the corner. Our son Miles is with us. Let me see if I can get all the questions out of the way. Uh, Julie and I are still happily married, 25 consecutive years of marriage this year, um, consecutive years. Um, three kids. Uh, Chase is a senior. He's not here. Uh, he got bit by a tick and got kind of the crud. He didn't have COVID. It's some crud, so he's at home, but he's doing better. Uh, Miles is here. Uh, Miles is the same age that John was when we started the church, and um, John's a soft, or Miles is a sophomore. Chase is a senior. Jack, uh, we called him Jackson then, is in sixth grade and uh, pastor a church in the north woods of Wisconsin. It's not the ends of the earth, but you can see the ends of the earth from where we live. Uh, we live an hour from Lake Superior. Yes, I have lost a little weight, and I'm also putting some back on. Um, and what else? Oh, I'm wearing my Pumas this morning. Where's Scott Dunning? I'm wearing my Pumas. These are for Scott Dunning. The red Pumas that I used to preach in that Scott gave me are on display in my office. People walk in, say, what's with the tennis shoes? And I go into this long story about Scott Dunning and Pumas, and it's a funny, funny thing. I've been thinking a lot about a verse, uh, a verse that says that, uh, that Jesus tells. He says, imagine a shepherd has a hundred sheep. And imagine that he has all those sheep in one spot. And imagine that he starts to count the sheep. 97, 98, 99. He starts looking around. There's supposed to be a hundred sheep here, but the one sheep is gone. I've been thinking a lot about that verse for Hayward, Wisconsin, where we live, and I was thinking about that verse for us here this morning. I could tell you a lot of stories today. I could tell you um, stories and the memories 
of uh, the room I was in at Kentwood Community Church when I first felt prompted to maybe do this. I was just in a room. Somebody asked for a prayer request. They were praying that God would see new churches started in Byron Center, and I felt prompted in my heart. Maybe me. Maybe I'll do that. I could take you to the spot in our house where Julie and I felt clear in doing this. I could take you to the day that Josh McNall, Brianna McNall, and Brent and Tanya and I sat around a kitchen table at Brent and Tanya's house, and we ate a meal. And last night, we sat at that same table. And I remember when we ate the meal there that day at Brent and Tanya's house, we got up, and Tanya, I think, said, what are we going to do when the church won't fit around the table anymore? And I said, I think we're going to have to get a bigger table. I could tell you a story about the day that um, a woman walked into church. We were praying down the hall. This woman walked into church as we were praying. I had my eyes open because I'm deeply spiritual like that. And so I saw this woman walk in, and this woman was holding a poodle, a poodle at Zion Christian School, a poodle. And Josh saw it, and I said, is that? And Josh said, yes, Chad, that's a woman carrying a poodle into church. And I said, two things, Josh. Number one, we're counting the poodle in morning attendance this morning. <laughs> Number two, if the poodle makes any sound whatsoever, I will call that lady out, I said. Josh said, I've never prayed so hard for a poodle to not make any noise in church. I remember the Sunday, early on, there was a couple, and we used to say, come as you are to church, just come as you are, come as you are, and there was a couple on the back row. If you're on the back row, buckle up, because this is a good story. They, they were sitting on the back row. I got up to preach, no kidding, they started making out on the back row. I'm not talking like a little, like, hey, honey, I love you, I'm so glad I came to church with you today. I'm talking, they were like fully engulfed, and I was like talking about loving Jesus with all your heart, and this guy's just like, give me some sugar, you know, and these two, they, they're kissing while I'm preaching, and, and I remember I stood up the next Sunday, and I said, uh, come as you are, and no making out on the back row, like, thought that was fairly obvious. Um, I remember Pete and Angie, and being here and Pete's not here, feels really weird. Pete came to Zion Christian School because he had sold Zion the prefab steel building that they used for their gym. And um, so somebody said, you ought to just go check it out. And he did. Never left. I remember the day that Pete got so mad at me. I had baptized Pete. We had baptized Pete. And... Um, he got really mad at me about something after that. I don't remember what all that was, but he got really, really mad at me. And he, like, cussed me out. I mean, like, cussed me out. And can you imagine Pete Title cussing somebody out, if you know Pete? And uh, he, like, cussed me out. And I remember saying to him, Pete, I should have baptized you twice, I said. I should have I I held you under when I baptized you. And Pete's like, you probably should have, you know. We, we kissed and made up. We did. I remember... Um, I remember Guy Rickert. The last time I was back to Grand Rapids was uh, to be part of Guy's funeral. 
And I was thinking this morning about not only baptizing Guy and seeing Guy come to faith in Christ, but I was thinking this morning about the day that we baptized Will. And we used to always sing, if you were around in these days, we used to always sing, um, oh, happy day. Remember this, Steve? Uh, we used to, oh, happy day, happy day, you washed my sin away. We'd always do that when we baptized people. We were hokey like that. And uh, we just always did that. And um, I remember singing, oh, happy day, when we baptized Will. Good grief. I remember that first Sunday. And um, Steve was there just checking the church out. Hey, I'll play maybe. Fifteen years later, Steve, I think you're in this deal, man. I think it's done. I used to call Steve Basinski Doogie. He was the youngest college professor I'd ever met in my life. I called him Doogie Hauser. <laughs> Remember, a drummer that morning on that first Sunday was a kid named J.J. Gorvet, John's brother. I remember somebody came up to me after the service, and they said, man, your drummer, he is so good. Where did you find your drummer? I said, Duncan Lake Middle School. That's where we found him, right down the street. I remember baptisms in a portable rented hot tub that we had to cover things up. It had a picture on one side, and it, this is totally inappropriate for church, but just bear with me for a minute. And we rented this thing, and Josh McNall was like, we may have a small problem. He's like, what's that? And he's like, we got this rented hot tub. It's on wheels. But there's one door on one side of it, and it says, for those with tops. And it had like a picture of a woman in a bikini. And then on the other side, it says, for those without. And I was like, what are we doing? We can't do this. And we covered all that up. And oh, my goodness. It was wheel be tubbing. Wheel be tubbing hot tub rental. Remember that, Brent? Wheel be tubbing. But I want to tell you one memory, and then John's going to talk about what's to come. On a Monday of our first year, Josh McNall walked into my office and said, we're down a, we're down a band member for Sunday. I was like, all right, that's one band member. You can still play guitar all as well. The next day, he's like, we're down a drummer for Sunday. I was like, all right, no big deal. We're still going to have church in five days, whatever it is. Wednesday, we're, we're down another vocalist for Sunday. By the end of the week, the entire band had backed out. We had no band for Sunday. I was like, well, Josh, how did you offend all these people in one week? And then I remember all of our volunteers that weekend, like kid volunteers, like Tanya and was, and was kids in those days, and, and like a whole bunch of kid volunteers had backed out. And I was like, what is happening? Like, this is, if it was today, I'd be like, who all got COVID? Like, what is going on, you know? And, and I remember Josh said to me, well, um, Chad, you're not going to be happy, but here's what's happening. Um, David Crowder is leading worship at Mars Hill this morning, and everyone is going there. I said to him, I hate David Crowder. Like, I, I do not like David Crowder at all. Like, we're not going to sing any more David Crowder songs in this church, I told him. Josh was like, that's all we sing. And I was like, well, we're not singing them anymore. Chris Tomlin, it only is. I was so mad that week. Not at people who went to hear David Crowder. I was mad that week. I was mad at Mars Hill Church. True story. Because truth be told, like, I wanted to go hear David Crowder. I did. But some day I had a daydream that God spoke in my heart and said, plant a church. And I'm like, 
I'm playing at church, and Crowder's over there. Like, Crowder, stop by. This was before the days of Facebook. I totally would have tagged him and been like, hey, Crowder, if you get lost this morning, come to Compass Church. That's what I would have done. I was mad at Mars Hill. I was mad at, I was mad at Resurrection Life Church that week. I drive by their church. I'm like, we're setting up and tearing down. Like, we're, we're, we're gritting it out for Jesus. And you, my friend uh, Adam, that was named the funniest person in Grand Rapids the year that I finished fourth. I am the fourth funniest person in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, funniest pastor, easily, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. But I, I remember Adam used to, he said, I went to Resurrection Life Church one time with my girlfriend. They stuffed those pews with money, he told me. I was mad at Resurrection Life Church that week. It's like, I don't even know these people, and I was upset. I drove on the Beltline past Ed Dobson's church up there, Calvary Church on the north side. And Ed had told me one point, he was a friend of mine, and I had met him through Wayne Schmidt, and Ed told me how much it cost to re-roof Calvary Church on the north Beltline in Grand Rapids. It was our entire budget for one year as a church. They spent that on shingles. And I remember driving by there, and I was mad at him. I was like, how'd you get all this? And uh, I remember that Sunday rolled around, and Julie's like, Chad, you have to go to church. And um, went to church, got everything set up. And I was sitting in a closet in the back of Zion Christian School where we stored all of our stuff. And in that closet was a big red cart that City Life Church in Grand Rapids had gifted us that we moved all our stuff on. Some of y'all in this room, Simo, you'll remember that. We had that big red cart that we moved everything on. And I'm sitting on that cart half an hour before the service starts. And I'm sobbing. Like I'm a mess. All by myself in this closet. And I'm sitting there thinking, David Crowder's singing, like, you are more beautiful than anyone ever. And I'm like, I'm never listening to Crowder again. And then I'm thinking about everything else. And I out loud, this is what I said. This is what I said. I said, God, how in the world do I compete with that? I said that out loud in that gym up there. It's probably the only time a prayer has ever been prayed in that closet. Just as clear as I'm sitting here talking to you. One, I felt really convicted because that was such a messed up, selfish, carnal statement. How do I compete with that? I, one, it wasn't about I. It never was. We didn't start this church because Chad and Julie and Josh and Brianna and Brent and Tanya cared about it. We, a whole bunch of other people came along for the ride, too. It wasn't about I. And it wasn't about ever competing. I remember standing up in church and many a Sunday morning and saying, Byron Center doesn't need another church. What Byron Center needs is a place where men and women can connect with Jesus that, that church just doesn't make sense to them. It, we need to be a body that's a gathering place for people. And so it wasn't about competing. And, and uh, Mars Hill isn't a that. Resurrection life isn't a that. True story. I remember a year when money was really rough, and I sat with a pastor from Resurrection Life, and he said to me, well, how are things going? And you're supposed to say, fine, good, never better. And I looked at him, and I said, I don't know how we're going to make payroll. And three days later, he walked into our little borrowed office, Trish, and he handed me a check for $2,500. 
And he said, when you run out of faith, you can borrow mine. I was like, I'll borrow more. Like, oh. <laughs> so I'm sitting on that cart. And it hit me that I don't have to compete with that. We didn't plant the church to compete with that. And I was reminded again of why we planted the church. It was because of a guy named Pete. It was because of a guy named Guy. It was because of Scott and Atala, my neighbor. It was because of, of so many of you, Mike and Lori. It was, it was just about one. I love this zero collective campaign thing. I asked John for one of those shirts this morning. I said, you got one of those shirts? I'll put it on. And John's like, I got a size small. And I was like, uh, yeah, we're not doing that, fella. I haven't been small since birth. So, um, by the way, John and Lindsay, they have a beautiful baby. You all have a beautiful, beautiful daughter. But I was thinking about that zero thing. How do you get to zero? It seems to me that you get there, Jesus would say, one life at a time. One at a time. I think about that for my own town where I live now, and I think about that for here. John's going to come, and he's going to talk a little bit more about It's interesting, Chad and I were talking even just over the last year about today and about what it means. And it's funny because I, I hear those stories and got to be a part of just different bits of that same story. And to me, the vision, if you talk about what's the future hold, like the vision that's worth pursuing for the future is the same vision that Chad and Julie took a faith risk to plant this church with. It's exact same vision. It's, it's always been about people. And that's why I'm so grateful for them. I'm so grateful for the leaders and families represented in this room and in first service who have given themselves to that vision, who've given themselves to that, that dream that in this community, there could still be one more family life and person. But I want to ask, I mean, as Chad talked about the last 18 months, um, for us as a church has been a unique story, but in our culture, in our community, in our world, I'd say the last 18 months has been incredibly difficult, but more than that, I'd say spiritually, some of us and some of our families have taken a spiritual hit these last 18 months. And so it causes me to ask the question, even looking right here, Center Church, not talking about the Capital C Church or Byron Center Church, is talking about our church. Is that vision that Chad and Julie launched this movement with, is that vision still our heartbeat? Is it still what we care most about? Is it still what drives us and, and causes us to have a life of urgency and passion? One of the most famous stories about uh, a conversion, about someone encountering Jesus in a powerful way is an act sign. I'm going to invite you, if you have a device or Bible, to turn there. We're going to look at just a couple verses in that. In Acts 9, which for some of us who have been around church, this will feel really familiar. But in Acts 9, you meet this character named Saul. And Saul was a professional terrorist. Anybody else do that for their job? Okay, just making sure. <laughs> I'd be starting to get afraid if, that, if you raised your hand. This is Saul's profession. He is literally a Jew who set on mission, paid by the Jewish elite to chase down people who followed the way of Jesus of Nazareth and to kill them. This was his calling in life. It says in the very beginning of this chapter, he was breathing murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord against the way. 
And in verse 3, here's what we read. As he neared Damascus, this place outside of the city of Jerusalem where he was, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? What's interesting is what happens next. This next verse is so interesting because Saul, who was a Jewish person who was supposed to have his life together spiritually and religiously, he asked this question. He says, who are you, Lord? Who are you? Saul asks this, and he doesn't recognize who the person is. And Jesus responds. He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now, get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now, from that moment, Saul has an encounter with the risen Jesus. His life gets changed and transformed. He's set on this path. He meets these other disciples, Ananias and some friends who lead him on the way. His, his spiritual eyes and physical eyes are open to this reality of the kingdom of God. And he's set on a mission. And we have most of our New Testament because of this moment right here. But what, in, what interests me, what intrigues me about this story is I don't think Paul in that moment knew what the future held. I don't think Paul knew that he would be in prison in Philippi or he would be uh, chased down by Roman authorities and beaten up outside of the city. I don't know if Paul knew the churches and the lives that would be changed because of his obedience in this moment. I don't think Paul knew what the future held. And, And you know, I stand here 15 years into the history of our church. I don't think we know either. I don't know what the future holds for my family. I don't know what the future holds when it comes to things like the job market or COVID or schools or mandates. I don't know the future. I don't even know what will our church look like in 15 years. I have no idea. So I want to ask, what do we know about the future? If we don't know any of that, what do we know about the future? And as I sat with God and tried to listen really, really closely, I feel like he kind of pressed on my heart one challenge and two things. So if you're a note taker, this is something to to ponder later and ponder now. One challenge and two things. The first challenge, the challenge is this. The biggest obstacles to the future God has for our church are not out there, which is what I get trapped into thinking. Well, it's because of COVID or it's because of who's president or because of who runs the schools or who, how people are interacting or how the soccer gods have taken over Sunday morning. It's all those people. It's their fault. It's their problem. That's the reason that we're not being able to fully live out our vision as a church. It's their problem out there. We're just victims to it. But I feel like God said to me and encouraged me this last couple months, the biggest obstacles to center church are not out there. They're in here. They're in here. They're actually in this room. See, the biggest obstacles are not external forces. They, it really boils down to, despite what the externalities are, despite what the government's doing or our communities are doing or who's sick or who's not, what doesn't change is that you and I can control how we move into the future. We can control our response and the kind of people and disciples we become. We can control that. And so there's two things. I think whatever the future holds, and, and, and what I would love to do as a pastor is to get up and be like, all right, I'm going to show you the diagram or the vision map or whatever, and this is what we're chasing after, and I don't have that. So I feel like I didn't really come prepared in that way. I don't have that for you. I don't feel like that's clear, or any of our leaders really feel like that's clear. And so I thought, what do we know, and what are two things that regardless of what God calls us to, we know the future will require? the kind of people we have to become in order to see that future lived out. And the first, first one is this, radical invitation. 
And the second is radical seeking. Radical invitation. Let me talk about that. When I look at the story of Saul and I look at what happens following this chapter in Acts 9, I look at what happens in the early church. I look at all the forces around them. No matter what was going on in their culture, every single person following the way of Jesus was radically invitational. They invited people into the movement. They were not exclusive, like you got to say this or do this to be in. They were inviting to all people. It, It really, if you look at church history, it messed with the Roman authorities. It messed with people in the early empire. They're like, why do you let anybody in here? Shouldn't they have to fill out all these boxes and, and check all these criterion? And, and they were radically inviting. And that, the fancy church word for that is evangelism. It's being willing to share your faith. It's being willing to stretch. It's being willing to take a kingdom risk and to get outside of your comfort zone. It's being willing to serve people. Some of you have stepped into that even the last couple of weeks. You said, I'm going to join a team. I'm going to serve, whether it's packing meals with hand to hand or opening doors and making coffee here on a Sunday. That's what it takes, radically inviting people in. Chad talked about our mutual friend, Pete. If Pete title was anything, he was not perfect. And he would tell you that he had a lot of areas God was working on him. But anytime you sit down with Pete, we would have conversations about people he had invited to our church. In fact, I've done weddings of people he invited to our church. I've sat with marriages and families of people. And I say, how did you end up at Center Church? Well, Pete and Angie invited me. Or how did you end up? Like, well, I remember one of the first summer, first baptism Sundays, I was able to baptize a girl named Ashley who still serves in Center Kids to this day. And I said, how did you get here? Like, how did you end up here? And she said, well, isn't it obvious? Pete and Angie invited me. Like they, they were the way I got here. I met them at a Griffins hockey game. Like they were just talking about their church and talking about Jesus. And, and they led me to this place. And now my life is getting changed. And I got to dedicate her, her, her daughter at the time. Like that to me is what it means to radically invite. It's to just step outside of ourselves. No matter what's happening in the future, we can do that. We can radically invite people in to this family, into the kingdom of God. And the second is radical seeking. Now by that, what I mean is what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 33. He says, if you seek my kingdom first, if you seek my way of life first, my way of being first, everything else will be added to you. Uh, really what my, the John Gorbett translation of that would be, seek me first and everything else will just get figured out. Even when the future seems uncertain, even when it seems unclear, and I've had moments like that even this last year where I just say, God, I have no clue what I'm doing, but what I can do is seek you. I can develop rhythms in my life, habits and patterns. I can show up on a Sunday ready to worship, ready to engage, ready to thank you, and I can pray. No matter what the future holds, I can, I can do those things. And I think God wants us to become those kind of people. Richard Foster, who's a theologian, writes this. He talks about the fact that uh, the heresies of our day, if you look at them, and I want to throw that quote up on the screen for you, because to me, it it speaks to what we're talking about. It says, the scandal of Christianity in our day is the heresy or the error of a 5% spirituality. 5%. And I think a lot of people in our community, I've lived this way before, are content with that and think that's what the Christian life is. Just giving 5% of my life, 5% of my marriage, 5% of my parenting, 5% of my job or my responsibilities at school, 5%. But a 5% spirituality and encounter with Jesus did not change Saul. 
And there's a really good chance you and I would not be sitting here as a church in 2021 had Paul at the time not radically sought after God and his mission in the world. It was an encounter with Jesus that ultimately changed Saul, which is fascinating because what I would think is, well, didn't Saul just need to find a better church? <laughs> like, just go to, have a better religious experience. But Saul was likely, if he was sitting in our church, the most Christian religious person you ever met. He didn't miss Sundays. He gave. His kids were always in center kids and well-behaved. Like, they were nicely dressed. They were punctual. But Saul was lacking an encounter with the risen Jesus. He had not encountered God's love for him personally that propelled him to share with others. He hadn't experienced that before. And friends, that's still true. See, Byron Center won't be changed by people who go to church. That's not even that interesting in Byron Center. Great, you go to church? Awesome. Doesn't everybody go to church in Byron Center? Which isn't true, by the way, but that's kind of the assumption. But Byron Center, this community we live in, it will be changed by people who seek and know and, and, and share Jesus with everybody, whether in family fair or at Speedway or in the school pickup line. Radical invitation, radical seeking. And, and Peter and I, as some of our staff team, have just gathered around this idea and said, I think this is the future. This is where God is calling us, especially for this year. And we said, well, that means we have to change some things too. We can't just say, we should all do this. But there's rhythms in our life that need to change, even our church's life. Like you're going to know, so I'm going to put this on your radar. The next couple Sundays and next couple months, there's going to be some changes in how we interact on a Sunday morning because we can't just keep doing the same things expecting a different result. And if we want to be the kind of people that serve our community radically, whether it's inviting or actually seeking after God, we have to change our focus corporately too. I was trying to think of like, how do you define this? How do you define radical seeking? It seems so mystical and kind of abstract. How do you really do it? And uh, the analogy of baseball is when I stumbled across Annie Dillard, who's a spiritual writer, compares seeking, uh, not seeking Jesus every day, but trying to be a Christian, like going to a Detroit Tigers game. Any Tigers fans or been to any games recently? Okay, a couple of you. So um, for me, I think about that. And I, I lived in Detroit for a few years and I went, let me tell you, I cannot tell you at the end of the game who won or lost. I just had no idea because I have enough disorder in me to be distracted the entire game. Like I'm sitting there and I'm watching the Jumbotron. I'm, I'm smelling the almonds in my nostrils. I'm like wanting to buy this hat and that shirt and talk to this person. And like, that's how I, that's how I am. And some of you may relate to that. But that's kind of what she meant. She said, following, trying to follow Jesus, but not really seeking after him and desiring him above all other things is like going to a baseball game and you've got all the distractions versus sitting at a Tigers game and you are the only person in the crowd. There's no jumbotron. There's no concessions. You are singularly focused on the game. You're just watching. You are fully present and fully engaged in what's happening. That's what I think it means to radically seek. It means to behold Jesus, not as a baseball game, but as a singular focus of our life, to make it about him, to make it about the people in our life who don't yet have that encounter yet. If you skip along Paul's journey, which is an incredible story, you can read it in the book of Acts. One of the things he writes while in chains is in Philippians 3 verse 7. And this has been an insp inspirational verse for me over the years. And he says, whatever regains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. That's a life that radically seeks. That's a life that has a singular focus for itself. And I was thinking, how do you, how do you define this in a life? How, how do you get at that? How do you talk about that? And and a few weeks ago, I stumbled across the story of my friend Craig, and I wanted to show it to you uh, and then talk about what that could mean for us. So check out Craig's story here for a few minutes. Just investing, taking a risk, having the courage to share Christ, to invite somebody to church, taking the time to have them over your house and mentor and disciple them what kind of ripple effect that that would have. It's probably 1942, 1943, Traverse City, Michigan. My great-grandma, Rena Bell, and great-grandpa, Gilbert, they were in their late 20s, had both grown up with high priority on values and good morals, no relationship with Jesus, no church attendance. I hear a lot of stories about my great-grandpa uh, being a chain smoker, having quite an affinity to curse words. They met this gentleman who also happened to be a pastor who was a handyman helping them out. Just makes an intentional decision to reach out to them and shares the gospel with my great-grandma and she gave her life to Christ right there. So then they, they start going to church. The pastor continues to reach out to, and, and my great grandpa starts coming to church, but he wasn't nearly as open or receptive. It, it took him a little while. And one day uh, before church starts, the lead pastor says to my, my great grandpa, hey, Gib, when are you gonna give your life to Christ? And my great grandpa, right then, he said, he said, right now. And they walked to the front, the altar before the service had even started, and he gave his life to Christ. But Reverend Drummond is this pastor's name. Reverend Drummond and his wife personally discipled and mentored my great-grandparents. So not only did this pastor take a risk, have the courage to share the gospel and invite my great-grandparents to church and to follow Jesus, but then spent countless hours just discipling and mentoring them. That decision uh, has created a, a legacy in our family. I started feeling like God was calling me to ministry and I wanted nothing to do with it. I mean, no. The answer was a hard no. So I was out. I, I say, I remember distinctly having this conversation with God. Like, I still believe you're real. I still believe your word is true. I just don't want to follow you. So I'm out. I'm going to do what I want to do. I ran away hard for two or three years. I was really pretty efficient at wrecking my life. But it was in those moments that I knew that my family was praying. I knew my family was praying for me. I even go back to my great-grandma. 
there was just a very real sense for me, even in those rebellion days, that she was praying and that God was pursuing me. Before I hit rock bottom, he got my attention. And I just said, God, whatever days I have left are yours. I'll do whatever you want me to do. It's the example of Reverend Drummond. It's the example of my great-grandparents and my grandparents and my parents living this out. And that certainly propels me forward in what God's called me to. Reverend Drummond has no idea the impact that he's had on my life, that he's had to the fourth generation and now the fifth generation. He helped start a church in Madison, Wisconsin, and he has no idea. But there's times where I think about, what if he didn't? The legacy could have been much different. And even the opportunity to lead my daughter to Christ and to watch her very early in her life take steps down the same journey with Jesus. The story God has woven for me and our family is a story of just simply going after the mission. What's really compelling is the changed legacy, is the churches that get started after I'm gone, and the families that come to Christ and are changed to the fourth and the fifth generation because of a simple investment, a risk I took to pray with my neighbor, a risk I took to share the hope I have in Jesus, that that could have an exponential multiplication effect on the kingdom. And I just have to show up and be obedient. I just have to show up and be willing and take the risk. If I could go back today and talk to Reverend Drummond, I would just say, thank you. His willingness to take the risk, to take the time, has made all the difference in my life. What hits me about Craig's story and getting to know Craig is what he says at the end, and I hope you caught it, that the Christian life and the good news of the gospel is not just that your life can be changed, which is powerful. And some of us have incredible stories of God redirecting and reorienting and transforming our lives, but it's to see generations of lives changed. It's for your kids and your grandkids to come. It's for your adult children who maybe have walked away, but, but the gospel is still powerful for them. It still can change them. We don't exist to only have our lives changed personally, but to see generations of lives change. And here's the tension you're all facing. All of you are sharing this, and, and I've shared this. You're saying, yeah, 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 but I'm not a pastor though. <laughs> you missed that critical point, John. I'm not a pastor, I don't do this for a living. I don't know, I don't have the, the tools or the abilities when I hear that objection, that, that reason, the first thing that comes to my mind is, is a guy named Bob. 
Bob Powers, just like Reverend Drummond and Craig's life, Bob Powers was was a legendary moose hunter in Moncton, New Brunswick, Canada, many, many hours from here. But Bob Powers was a Christian and he lived across the street from a house of people he would just, you would describe as not really Christian, just in their behavior and, and how they lived. And Bob decided that he would take this invitation from Jesus seriously. He walked across the street and invited this family to church. None of them said yes. And over and over he invited, none of them said yes. And some of you know this story. And eventually one of them said yes. It was a 17-year-old boy named Ken. And Ken really wanted to become a good moose hunter. <laughs> Living in rural Canada, what else do you do, right? It's hockey and moose. That's about all you have to look forward to. And so Ken was like, I I'm not good at hockey, but I could become a moose hunter. And so he hangs out with Bob. Bob takes him to church. Ken's life gets redirected, changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ken and his whole family surrender their lives to Christ. And then Ken has a son named Mark, and Mark has a son named John Gorvet, who's standing here as a result of generations of lives that were changed. And it took one person. It took one person to radically invite, to radically seek after Jesus. And so I look at family photos, and this one I stumbled across this week. Family photos, and there I am in the yellow shirt, and almost every person in that picture now is either serving in a church role or serving God in some way. One of them is right here. And I look at that and I think, what if Bob didn't do that? What if Reverend Drummond didn't do that? What if they just decided to become insulated and say that the pressure and the opportunities are just, it's too hard. And so the question, as I was praying through these cards, we, we all kind of prayed over last week is, is, will you give yourself to this mission too? Will you give yourself to this? For the sake of people like Amber, someone's dad named Jay, for someone's employees, for someone's friend named Nick, will you be willing to, to take this vision personally? Will you decide together now in this moment to lay down excuses and distractions and the pressures the other things that want your attention and just to say, I'm gonna give myself to this too. Because that's my commitment. The only church worth being a part of at the end of the day is the church that does this. And, and that's what I wanna be a part of. That's, that's what I think would take us to the next 15 years to be able to actually say with conviction in our heart that the best days are ahead. And that's only true if we take that vision seriously and take that vision personally by radically inviting people and radically seeking after Jesus. And so I want to pray for us and ask God just to do that work in us, to start now. You look back and say, hey, man, I remember the 15-year anniversary. I remember that service. I sat in there. I watched those stories. I heard Chad. I heard John. And something shifted. Something changed. I got new purpose or a new sense of call or a new excitement about the vision God has given us. And it changed my family and generations after. So, God, that's our prayer. Make us those kind of people. Give us not only the passion, but the urgency that over and over again, as we bump into people at family fair, at our middle school, at the gas station, to see people through your eyes and to recognize that zero does, it just starts with one person. And that we would sit here 15 years from now and say, look at what God has done. Look at what he's done. And you can start with me, Lord. You can start 
doing that in my heart right now. And I pray that you'd start that in us as well. We pray it in Jesus' strong name. Amen. We're going to close here in a minute. I'm going to invite you to stand because I think the best way to end, the best way to send us out of this moment is to pursue God's presence, is to go after him. So let's worship and sing together.